0: Welcome to the Path and Focus podcast, where we record ourselves building a wildfire technology company. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowers, a software developer turned entrepreneur.
1: And I'm Kayleen McCullough, a former wildland firefighter turned software developer.
0: So we saw each other for the first time in over a year this weekend.
1: In person, not just on the little video box.
0: In person, yes. It was wonderful.
1: It's shocking to think that that's true, that it's been over a year that I've seen you in person.
0: Yeah. Wow. Long time. Well, it was wonderful to see you. And now we're back in our little video box. And what's what's some things that have happened since last week?
1: Well, after our call last week, we had another call with someone else on our team to talk about machine learning. Um, that was an interesting conversation.
0: So our conversation with Chris, who is the CTO at Two Story Robot, he has a, a strong background in machine learning, um, computational neuroscience. And so I was kind of hoping he would say, oh, yeah, this is super easy. Like, just put a little machine learning on it and your problem solved. <laughs> but that's not really how that works. And I knew that, I think.
1: <laughs> I almost want to have him on here and explain it himself. Um... Because I did not think we we're going to do it justice. But yes, his answer was that it is much more complex than we want it to be. And the simpler solution is the better solution.
0: Yeah. And we've had conversations like this regularly about machine learning stuff. And often his answer is, um, don't. <laughs> it's way harder than you think it is. And just don't do it. Like, do something else first. And so the problem that we were describing to him was that the weather data that we have... In order to calculate the danger rating that we're displaying for industry folks to, to tell them if if they can or should work or what the restrictions are, that needs weather data in a consistent way. And sometimes the weather station doesn't report back for various reasons. Maybe it's gone down. Maybe it's just missing some data. And we want to be able to fill that in. And we thought, oh, like, perfect. Machine learning could just make, like, make it all up like it does for everything else, it seems. He said was possible... But probably what's easier is to just do some math and come up with a, a reasonable way of approximating that data on our own, which was a little disappointing because that sounds like more work. Uh, but it sounds like machine learning is actually even more work.
1: Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit confusing because in, in my head, figuring out that math actually seems like a ton of work because there's so many edge cases in which we have to consider and so, so be like, Oh, like we'll offload that mental load to the computer and let it figure out all those edge cases for us. Like that, that's, that seems so much easier to me. Um, but Chris is setting that up is more mental load than just figuring out the edge cases on our own.
0: Yeah. I suspect that machine learning people kind of get that a lot where we're, we're- non-machine learning people just think like just let the machine figure it out and they're like well it's not that easy in the same way that like when we're doing um some software development work and somebody says oh just like make this happen and you know you kind of think through it a little bit and you're like well (laughs) that's really hard to do um that's not going to take the hour that you think it's going to take that's probably going to take a couple weeks um so i imagine that's sort of what what's playing through his head (laughs)
1: But I mean, he did say that there's opportunities with machine learning, like a lot of the work that he's doing on a project that he's kind of wrapping up right now is very similar to what we are sort of proposing here. And so it's not that machine learning doesn't have potential. It's just a bigger topic.
0: Yeah. And in that project, they have way more data and with a lot higher resolution, like the, the weather data that we have. I don't think it's more frequent than say five minutes it's probably hourly data but the data he was talking about was um, maybe like every second uh, possibly even more frequent than that so
1: yeah but I mean we do have hourly data back into like the 70s for like the raw weather it's not like we don't have any data to work with
0: no and it's it's cool though because um, because we've got all that Access to all that historic data. I think it does make sense to take the approach he suggested, which was to to look at the data and just just try to figure out a model that makes sense in a like in a manual way. And and we have all this historic data that we can test it against. So I'm excited to explore this problem a little bit and experiment on some things, and then come back and uh, have Chris come on the show and give us a little wildfire review of how how we did. <laughs> So speaking of wildfire, um, so one thing that we had chatted about just recently was the word wild. And in, so in context, some of us on the team have started trying to remove certain ableist language from our vocabulary. And that includes like words that have you know, been used traditionally, I would say, in a derogatory sense to talk about people with um, certain, what's the word I'm looking for? Cognitive disabilities. Words like "crazy" and "insane" is that maybe how you would describe it, Kayleen?
1: I don't think it's necessary just cognitive abilities. I, I could be wrong about that.
0: Mm. Yeah, but specifically around abilities. So yeah, so cognitive cognitive abilities would be one, but then also physical physical ability. Um, so I said like, uh, you know, "crazy" and "insane" have been used and often get used inappropriately. And then I think words that maybe for physical abilities or physical disabilities be things like lame. But it started us talking about, um, we used a word in a tweet to describe extreme weather behavior. We used insane. We said insane weather or insane heat. I can't remember exactly. And then internally, we just kind of discussed that a bit and started talking a little bit about what ableist language is. And we're going to try to not do that anymore and use the the word that we really intended, which was probably extreme or maybe unpredictable. And then we were talking about like what the word wild means and if that's okay because... We have switched to using wild in place of some of those other words to refer to things that are, you know, unpredictable or just like kind of mind boggling, like things that make you think that something shouldn't happen. We often say, well, that's like, that's wild that that happened. And we were kind of wondering if that was also another crutch that we were falling back on, on a word that's a little bit more convenient to use in place of some of these other words. And maybe it, maybe it falls victim to some other ableist, ableist words. And we were wondering if wild was okay.
1: I like the conclusions we were drawing about our mindfulness around words. And I think learning to get very clear on what we're trying to say instead of falling back on vague terminology is of value. So I like the idea of trying to not just replace these ableist words with other words, but actually getting very clear on what it is I'm trying to say. So for instance, I used the word wild the other day to refer to the... Increase in gas prices. Uh, and then I, I paused. I was like, hmm, like, that's not what I mean. It's not an uncertain thing. What I'm trying to say is that I find these gas prices to be really expensive. <laughs> and so I was like, I should just say that instead.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I have found myself saying wild a lot. You know, my habit is to maybe go for a, a more inappropriate word and then I'm like, nope quickly change the word to wild, but that's like a quick reaction that I've taught myself that I'm consciously making. I find myself like either catching myself using it or after the fact, I'm like, oh yeah, I used the word wild and maybe I should have used extreme or something else. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. I like your thought of being more deliberate in choosing the words that we are using because I think it helps with communication. I mean, particularly because we are a remote team, I often see people on our team and myself, I catch myself doing it, using the word this or that, like things that are very non-descriptive and then having to kind of trace through what is actually being referenced rather than, you know, rather than the thing itself. So I'll use this in design quite a bit, where I'll like leave a comment on something and I'll say, you know, we should put a button here and like the only context to the word here is the fact that i've dropped an arrow somewhere and i feel like i could it could be better explained if i was like really specific and explicit about what i meant and and yeah it's been it's been kind of an interesting thing to think about in the last few weeks
1: yeah it's an interesting journey for me because in general i have a very broken speech pattern primarily cuz i spend time searching for the right words and what i'm trying to say you know, very conscious of that. And so in the past, I've tried heavily to break out of that habit by just sort of word vomiting, <laughs> like just say what's in my head and get that out so that it's a little bit more fluid. Um, but I think in doing so, that's forced me to like just fall back on like quick words that come to mind that might not be the like true intention. So now try to move in the other direction again to find the right meaning and spend the time searching for those things. I think this podcast is actually an interesting avenue to explore that because people listening to us don't have any visual context. We do need to get very clear on what we are saying and referring to. So it's it's been a fun practice.
0: The world of wildfire is full of words and we've found them confusing and confounding sometimes. And we have to be very careful about how how we use because they refer to different things. So there's the concept of fire rank, fire intensity, and fire type. And before I started down this journey, I would not have been able to tell you the difference between those things. Actually, even before two weeks ago, I would not have been able to tell you the difference between those three things because they all seem like they're kind of describing the same thing. But you know, we have to be careful when we use those because they are referring to very different things. So fire rank is something that I've seen a lot more lately, certainly in Twitter. And I follow some people that monitor the scanners and they report sort of what they're hearing, what people are radioing back and forth. And they often say, oh, it's a, it's a rank three fire. It's a rank two fire. We've heard that a bunch, but internally we've also looked at words like fire intensity and uh, fire type. And so fire type basically now correct me if I'm wrong, Kayleen. Fire type is basically like a really high level description of how the fire is burning. So it's either ground fire, fully in the crown, which means at the top of the you know, in the in the leaves of the trees, and then intermittent crown. So between the ground and the crown. That's fire type.
1: Yeah. You nailed it.
0: And then fire intensity is basically an energy measure of kilowatt hours per meter or per minute
1: kilowatt hours per meter
0: kilowatt hours per meter that's a strange i don't understand that (laughs) anyways (laughs) it's a measure of it's a measurable value but then they break it up into these classes like class fire intensity class one through six not to be confused with fire rank one through six and that's where some of our confusion where some of my confusion was is uh that these were referring to two separate things so the intensity class one through six is just buckets of energy numbers so how many kilowatt hours per meter is this fire putting off or consuming I guess and then fire rank is is again something that describes the behavior of a fire
1: I think there there's a relationship between them though fire rank is an observable visual representation of fire and given a specific fuel type it would generally relate to the measurable fire intensity it's just a bit of an easier way for firefighters to look at it to 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 observe behavior because it there's a visual description of what they should be seeing out on the landscape to represent that rank
0: Right. So what's what's an example? Like, What would be a rank one versus a rank, say, six?
1: Yeah, rank one is a ground fire or a surface fire. So when the flames are only moving along the forest floor versus a rank six is really intense, extreme fire behavior that has a high spread rate and spotting, and you could see other dangerous fire behavior.
0: Even when you go into the definition of what rank six is, it's full of other words that also are not necessarily confusing, but like kind of unclear, like a fire whirl uh, is basically a tornado, which feels like something that the movies have made up, Um, but that's a legitimate thing and it sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, One of the words that you used also uh, that I see quite regularly when I'm reading about fires and the fire behavior is spotting. What's spotting? And also, what's candling?
1: (laughs) Candling is when a fire moves from the ground into the crown up a tree. So you'll see, like, the fire's just on the ground, and then all of a sudden it'll reach enough intensity that it'll just, like, travel very rapidly straight up a tree into the crown. It's pretty intense to watch. Um, Spotting is um, the movement of fire from one location to a separate location um, not connected through continuous fire so sparks embers things like that will um, get in to the wind and be blown away from the main body of the fire and will hit fuels in that other location and start a new fire
0: one of the uh cooler sounding words that i really liked uh, or phrases i guess it's something liam had sent to me through a recording he was talking about fire rank and he said organized fire front and i just thought that was the coolest <laughs> the coolest sounding thing like it sounded like it gave this fire um i don't know if it's dangerous to do this or not but like this personality like it's organized like it's not just it's not just burning randomly or wildly it's It's got a plan, and it's going to do it. And that's the sense I got from hearing the word organized fire front. And I know that's not probably what it means, but I, it was, I was unsure about what it meant. And if you go and look at BC Wildfire Services' website, and you look at the, the definitions of the different ranks, it uses organized fire front quite a bit. And I didn't understand what that meant.
1: I mean, I think you kind of hinted at the definition. An organized fire front refers to consistent movement of the fire perimeter as opposed to that inconsistent, potentially not very fast-moving perimeter.
0: Right. I guess that makes sense. So another word that we have spent more time than I think we should have talking about is the word spread. So spread is used to refer to essentially how quickly the fire is moving. And often it's used as the rate of spread, which is a measure of speed. So basically... Meters per minute or maybe kilometers per hour. How fast is the fire moving? Yesterday, I read somebody did some initial analysis on the fire that started in a Soyuz. Um, and they said it moved 10 kilometers in a day, which seems extremely fast and and very, very terrifying to see that happen. Um, but But where my confusion with the word was is that Um, There's also a spread class. Again, a lot of the wildfire industry likes to, it seems like they like to break down these, these numbers into these classes. And then like yesterday, I think- uh page discovered that the BC wildfire services just acknowledged that they use a whole ton of confusing terms and they shared a couple of links. So they've got a wildfire glossary, which I went through and looked at. And that was, uh, there's lots of words in there. I think there's some that are missing that they could have added, but there's lots of words in the wildfire glossary. And then there's this response types and the stages of control, which I found really interesting because they also showed um, the terms that they used to use. And I really liked it. I remember hearing some of these terms in the past. Like under control, for example, right now that means the fire has received enough suppression that it's not going to spread. And previous to 2016, they would use the words 100% contained. And so I kind of like the new words, although I do find the term out of control to be, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I find that to be maybe more scary than it needs to be. I don't know. (laughs) But I I do like the new words better, because I think they describe the situation a little bit more clearly to a lay person.
1: I also enjoyed reading that page, primarily to understand why they transitioned to the new words. Back in my day, when I was firefighting, we used the old words, and that's what I was more used to hearing. And so when I in the last couple years have been hearing out of control or under control, I've found it, yeah, like you say, adding unnecessary fear but i understand why they have transitioned it kind of like circles us back to the very beginning of our conversation talking about like word origins and historic meanings to things
0: yeah I, I really do think using consistent and clear and appropriate language is really helpful for just for communicating in general right like we talked about um communicating on the team in a remote sense is hard but we do our best and language, language is tough, but I do think it's, I think it's helpful. To think about. So you've been listening to the path and focus podcast, find and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Hey, it's Jonathan here. Uh, was just in editing and notice that we did use the wrong term. Um, we used kilowatt hours per meter, and that was incorrect. It should be kilowatts per meter. Um, anyway, just a small correction. Uh, thanks for listening.